today, this last year, we've started some a political scene that's really interesting, isn't it? And I look and go, I don't know if it's ever been as ugly as it has this last year. Uh, but in light of that, I want to throw you a scenario here, just for introduction. What if Jesus decided to run for some office? What if he begins to travel, says, I'm in. And he goes from village to village and he lays out his spiritual vision, his policies, he holds babies, he answers questions, he has rallies. And one of the unique things at his rallies is he actually heals people. People come forward and he's laying on hands and lepers are healed and people that are sick and even dead people are brought to life. But in spite of that, there are people that aren't too impressed with Jesus. See, the media and lots of people really don't like his spiritual ideology. Matter of fact, if Jesus were running and taking the polls, even in his own village, he wouldn't get over 50%. He couldn't win approval in where he lived. And like many politicians today in our scene today, there's people following him around and protesting. Help signs. But think of Jesus running for office and what would be his motto? The line, and I think it might be something like this, making his father great. And maybe, maybe the people in his inner circle were going, make Galilee great again. I don't know if they would do that. But just think, village after village, walking, teaching. And, and then one day he pulls back from the crowds and from the people and he begins to, he brings his inner circle together and he goes, guys, I'm going to take a poll. But the poll's going to be a little bit different. What I want you to do, don't worry about favorability ratings. Don't worry about whether people are going to vote for me or not. Don't worry about if I'm electable or not. What I want you to do in this poll is to go ask one question. And the question is this. Who do they say I am? Who do they say I am? Let's read the text today. Chapter your Bibles, Mark chapter 8. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others said Elijah, and others one of the prophets, and others Bernie Sanders. But, okay, not that one. And he asked them, who do you say I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, plainly. So here's Jesus. Walking around, he's about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, in deep conversation with his disciples. And Jesus, always the teacher, begins to take 
a different stance in how he teaches his disciples. Remember before, it was kind of this veiled idea of what was going on with him. But understand, again, Jesus wasn't worried about people's favorability, whether they liked him, but what he was concerned about was the disciples that were with him and him influencing a group of people for a purpose. And he asks this question, who do they say I am? A prophet? The list goes on. But see, there's really a question, I think, for us today as well. If you're following along in the bulletin outline, I said it this way, a most important question, who is Jesus to you? Matter of fact, if you have a family, if you have kids, one of the questions when you think of your children, who is Jesus to them? Do you realize in 2016 that Jesus had a reputation? He still has a reputation today. You think of even how he's been used in the entertainment industry as well. Everything from Da Vinci Code to South Park, that TV show, to all kinds of depictions of who he was. Sometimes fictionalized, sometimes in satire. But even 2016, people have an opinion as to who Jesus is. Let me show you some recent stats, just a couple of them here from Barna. This is from 2015, so very current. 56% of people in the United States believe that Jesus was God. 26 say that he was only a religious or spiritual leader like Muhammad or Buddha. Now, those numbers have gone up in the last 10 years significantly, or down, I should say, in terms of the, the first one. 18% say they're not sure whether Jesus was divine. 52% of Americans, this would include then some of those that are saying he is a God, he's God, either strongly or somewhat agree that while he lived on earth, he committed sins just like other people. And you go, wow. But Jesus asking his disciples, who do the crowds say I am? Prophet Elijah. But Peter pipes up. He's the impulsive guy. Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah. And I think Jesus goes, good job, Peter. But then Jesus begins to fill in some dots, some missing components that they really hadn't realized. It was blocked from them still. And in that verse 32, it says, he spoke to them plainly. Folks, this is such an important point in the life of the disciples. It was at this moment that it is very direct. He was very direct in saying, I will be rejected by these people. I am going to have to die. And yes, I will be raised again. And there was probably doubts in their minds about that. But he was connecting the dots for them in a way that was very different than earlier in the ministry. And they would have understand why this clash between the Pharisees and Jesus. But I think along with that, if the one that you had been followed for almost three years comes and says to you, I gotta die, I gotta be crucified, wouldn't there be a sense of grief at that point? And a bit of pushback on, wait a second. And Peter responds again, but here's where I want to switch over to Matthew chapter 16 in your Bibles. Matthew 16 gives us a couple more pieces that Mark doesn't give us. 
And look how it reads in verse 22. And Peter took him aside. This is after explaining things in a very direct way. And began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, this is Jesus saying to him, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not, are not setting your mind on the things of God, but the things of man. Here, Peter's the spokesperson of this group and saying, Jesus, you're crazy here. We are not going to let you die. And the Lord responds with this very harsh term, get behind me, Satan. What is he saying there? He says, Peter, you cannot and you will not be an obstacle to my mission. The mission to die for you. And to die for us. And to die for the world. But here's where i got to dig farther in this parallel passage here because there, this is such a critical moment in the lives of the disciples. So I want to put up another text from Matthew here earlier. Look at verse 15. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, You are Christ, the Son of the living God. And look at the fuller response here in this passage. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now let me give you a summary of a key truth and an issue that's just been revealed to the disciples. And it's a lesson really for us today. This truth, if you're following along in your outline there in the bulletin, we are dependent on the work of God, the Holy Spirit, for people's hearts to be opened and to know the real Jesus. See that phrase, flesh and blood, has not revealed this to you, Peter. He's saying, guys, it's not your keen intellect that made this happen. You didn't hear it on Twitter. You didn't understand this because of Facebook. You didn't Google this and figure out that I was the Christ. You didn't even read evidence that demands a verdict and come to faith. No, it was my Father, very pointed here, who worked in your heart through the Holy Spirit and he was revealing to you that I am the Messiah, the promised one, and that I must die for this world. The Father had to work. Peter responded in that, yes. But you understand that the Father had to convince even Peter that Jesus was the Messiah. But you think of all of the crowds that were following him around at all of those rallies. All of a sudden, people are, these people are being healed. The teaching that he was saying. Yet those things, some of those things, didn't register in the lives and the hearts of people. They couldn't still believe that Jesus was the Messiah. God has to work. The Father has to work. And, and you go, do we keep thinking, though, intellectually that somehow we can talk people in to believing the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ? You know what? I, I've known, I know wives 
who have left tracks around their home and books around their home for their unbelieving spouses, to their, their husbands to read, to try to convince them of the truth of Jesus. I've known parents who've put them in a youth ministry, even at a Christian school, so that somehow it would convince their kids that, you know, that Jesus is real. But I understand here the, the, the strength of this. If the Holy Spirit doesn't work, intellectually there's something that's broken there within the heart and in the mind. And this collective evidence that crowds are following him and yet they don't get it. They don't get it. Now, at times we struggle with this idea and, um, you know, not being that we can convince people of the gospel and that he's the Christ and and we're not going to go down that path theologically. There's a lot more that I could do. But I would say this, when you go ask the question, why don't people get it? And I would say this, they are trapped in their sin of self-love. See, I I think we keep defining sin as moral actions and recognize the weight and the depth of sin. It's more than lying and stealing and cheating. That's not the issue. The issue is that there's something within them that's blocking them being able to see who Jesus is. And and let me give you a a biblical illustration of this from 1 Corinthians 2.14. This is a new living. It says, but a person who is not a Christian does not understand these words from the Holy Spirit. He thinks they are foolish. He cannot understand them because he does not have the Holy Spirit to help him understand. See, something changed within Peter. The Father had worked through the Spirit, and now he was able to hear the spiritual food that Jesus was giving, and it tasted good. It tasted. God was, it was a delight to follow Jesus. But for those who do not have Christ, the things of God, to say it this way, they, they don't have any taste. It's flat, it's without any flavor. And why would you eat it when there's no taste? But you ask the question, well, if they don't taste spiritual things, what do they taste? And I think it's this. At the root of it, it's their own self-love. It's about the self. The one without Christ, pleasure tastes great. Power tastes great. Fame tastes great. Submitting to Christ, that's not much flavor in that. That isn't too attractive. Now, you've got to hear me here because it doesn't mean that every person is a deeply evil person. Not at all. People can be morally good on the outside. They can be giving. They can be nice people. But they don't have spiritual taste buds to know that Christ is the Messiah, the chosen one, that he died for them. Now, we could spend lots of time digging into this issue and spend weeks on it, but there's an application that I think is so important for us today in light of this, in light of our time even. And the application is this. Are we praying that God might work in the hearts of people? 
Uh, you know what, I thought of the election as I was prepping this and, and the realization that the Spirit just convicted me how quickly I am to judge and condemn based on a position or based on an ideology. But I have to say this, see, if the Father hasn't revealed the truth of the gospel to those candidates, do we realize they're just acting normal? In that sense, they don't believe the gospel. Frankly, they believe that their autonomy is a wonderful thing. And they're deeply satisfied with that. And they believe that they have the right to decide what's right in their own eyes. And the reality of that sin exists, understand, whether you're a Democrat or Republican or Libertarian or Socialist or Muslim, it doesn't matter. See, people are trapped in their self-love. Their self-rule. And they love their, their self-love. So what should be our response in light of that? What should our posture be when people are trapped in the depths of sin? And I think it, it needs to force our hearts open and go, are we stopping and are we praying for people? To pray that the eyes of their hearts would be opened by the Holy Spirit. See, we don't know exactly where all of these even candidates are at spiritually. We can probably guess. But even this week, thinking back, I can't remember a time when I specifically prayed over the last year for some of these individuals' salvation. I have to confess that. I haven't prayed that God would interrupt their lives. And what if you had millions of people praying? What would happen if they would bow their knee before Christ and God would reveal to them the work of his son. See, God needs to work. It should drive us to pray. But even this goes, I think, beyond politics as well. How about when you walk into work tomorrow? Do you look at your co-workers and go, God needs to work Maybe before you get out of your car tomorrow, you, you walk up to the, wherever you're at and you go, Father, would you just open their hearts today? Would you stir something? Would you give me an opportunity actually to begin a dialogue and to build a relationship that one day the Holy Spirit would work and use me to open their hearts? See, he wants us to be instruments in that process. But it should force us to... to Ask God to work. It should force us to look at our children and go, what if they don't know who Jesus really is? We need to ask that the Holy Spirit would work. And, and here's one piece to it. I don't think we ever should assume that somebody's heart is so hard that they can't respond to the love of Christ. I, I think of Paul right away. I, that he comes to mind where you understand he was he was a part of killing the early church Christians. And all of a sudden on the road to Damascus, there was a, a crash where he crashed into Jesus. Why are you persecuting me? Paul's heart was incredibly hard. And Christ had the power to break through and change his heart and become an instrument for God. We never can assume that people's hearts are too hard. But I need to ask a question here. Has this work of the Spirit been done in your life? Where God has showed you and said, Jesus died for me. 
He wants me to follow, to repent, and turn and love him. And for many of you, this probably makes sense, but there could be a few in here that where you're going, I don't know. But I would say this, maybe the Holy Spirit is knocking on your door right now going, open up, I want to come in. I want to reveal to you who Jesus is. And I would encourage you, don't wait. If that's the Spirit working on you, talk to somebody. But I also felt I needed to go deeper in this passage in Matthew here this week because there is another connection here, an aha moment for the disciples in their development. See, there's a a question of who do they say I am? There's a connection to an aspect that we don't quite stop and think about very often. And it's who do they say I am and the church. Folks, there's a connection here. Look at verse 17. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, and, and I tell you, Peter, talking to Peter here, on this rock I will build, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. My Father has revealed this to you. You're Peter, and on this rock. Now, understand the strength of this statement. People keep thinking, oh, the church is going to die off. That's just not true. Because Why? Because Jesus is the one that's building the church. But understand this. This is an all-consuming task for Jesus. But here's the challenge in our culture of today is that we have this idea that I can love Jesus, but the church, nah, I don't really care about that. And by the way, that attitude is growing, literally leaps and bounds in our culture. And I recognize, again, one of the pieces to that is, you know, people have been hurt by churches. That is so true. It leaves people thinking, is church really necessary? But folks, Jesus is the one that makes the church important here. And I believe there's a statement I need to make that I think is fair. It's pretty strong. And we'll, I'll push it and explain it later. But I think this is fair. If we say that we love Jesus and we have, don't really care about the church, we have a right to say, is your love lacking for Jesus? Do you really understand what it means to love Christ? I think that's a fair statement. See, Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell shall not overcome it. It's important to Jesus. Now, I am going to bypass, just warn you, I'm going to bypass the whole issue of Peter. Is Peter the rock or Christ the rock? Um, Don't have enough time to get into that here today. But it's this more important statement that Jesus is going to build his church And you go, what's the connection between who I am, who do they say I am, and the concept of the church? And for your notes, let me give you that connection. The reason that the Father is revealing the work of his Son is so that the church would be built. See, we get trapped into thinking that the only reason that Jesus died for me was to save me from my sins. And I go, that is a less than complete answer. 
as to why Jesus was sent on this mission by his father. John 17, I won't go to the text, but John 17 talks about the idea that the father is raising up a gift for his son. And that gift was because the father loved the son and the gift equaled the church, the bride of Christ. The father's giving his son a bride because he loves him and the bride is the church. It's more than a metaphor. It's a relational reality. See, the first step, though, in building his church was to do what? Die for it. To deal with the consequences of sin. Jesus came to this earth to build his church to raise up a bride for eternity. Revelation 19 looks at the great wedding of of a final union that's going to take place and we'll be there forever. But the building of the church is is part of his mission. And I've got to add one piece here. Because the building of the church cannot be detached from local churches. And a lot of people are wanting to do that. And a lot of books are being written. I want to follow Jesus, be his disciple, but I don't like the local church. Listen, he's telling his disciples, and later on he's going to tell them to go make disciples, always with the purpose in mind of creating the bride of Christ, the church. But you've got to catch how pointed he is. I will build my church. Jesus is the one that's doing it. Now, do we play a part in that? Absolutely. And by the way, when people predict, oh, the church is going to die, no way. Why? Because Jesus is the one that's building it. Not local churches can die out, I recognize that. But the church and the collective of all churches, it's not going to go away. Matter of fact, the fastest growing place in terms of churches and people coming to faith right now is Iran, the most hostile toward the Christian faith. But there's a call, folks, as the church is being built, that we are his instruments in helping create these churches, both a universal church but the local church as well. And understand the New Testament really is dripping or maybe overflowing with this idea of local churches being raised up to make the larger universal church. And and when I say churches, it could be a small church, a group of people. It could be a church of thousands. But where the confusion comes in too often because of tradition, we end up believing this, that the church equals a building. And that's what I'm not saying that he's raising up buildings to be his bride. The goal is to become the church, the bride of Christ, to become a group of people that are being changed to become more beautiful for our groom, Jesus Christ. We're not called to just a building. Building doesn't make a church a church. We're called to be the bride of Christ, where Christ and the Holy Spirit is working in us to become instruments where the church would grow, inviting more and more people to be a part of the bride of Christ and for the church to make the bride, help the process in making the bride more beautiful. But here's where i got to give you a little nasty little secret. Sometimes the bride just isn't that beautiful. There's lots of stains, lots of stuff going on. 
And I realize over the years that people have been wounded by a church. And you know what? Our family has. Now, do I want to be insensitive to that? The answer is no, because hurt within churches can be very real. But do you know why churches hurt people? Why it could be true even here? Because you are here and I am here. Because people hurt people. But there's really good news in, in that. I've got to say it this way. Thank goodness God is not done with us in making us more beautiful. And he wants us to humble ourselves and, and open our hands and go, Jesus, make us more beautiful. That's his goal. Ephesians chapter 5, to present to himself a church of beauty. But folks, the idea that one can love Jesus and hate the church, even a local church, is terrible theology. You're telling Christ that you hate that which Christ is working in and through, and he's working to be make them more beautiful and ready, and yet we say we hate them. That is a dangerous place to be. And maybe more pointedly, it's like this. We go up to Jesus and say, Jesus, I love you, but your bride, I don't have want anything to do with her. And you hear that and you go, ouch. Uh, that's a bit of a contradiction. It'll have enormous proportions, isn't it? See, that somehow we can stay at home, we can claim to be a church by ourselves, really is nonsense. There's no biblical basis or historical basis as one looks at the church. And let me just give you three bullet points of really emphasis there as the scriptures teach about this. The first reminder there, God commands the church to meet together. Look at Hebrews 10.24. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. How do you spur somebody on if you're not with them? And he's not talking just about individual families here. He's talking about local churches. Not giving up meeting together as some in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. This idea we're called to encourage each other. We have to be in relationship actually to do that. Uh, a few years ago, I spoke on the one another's. I think there's like 36 minimum that I found on that. So we're called to come together and recognize it's more than just Sunday morning. See, it's not just a, a church is 9 o'clock and 10.30. The church is not the place where all of that happens all the time. See, it's about being the church. It's about community groups, DNA groups, gatherings of people where they can encourage, love, care for. Folks, relationships are so vital to becoming the church. But Jesus is building his church. And it's not okay to just be bailing from the church in that sense. Let me give you a second one here. Second bullet there. Almost every New Testament book is written and directed toward local churches. Do you realize that? The only exceptions would probably be First and Second Timothy. And even there, those letters were being passed around and used in the local churches for some key doctrines. He's writing, almost the New Testament is directed, Ephesus, Galatians, Corinthians, the Romans. Those are local churches that he wrote the New Testament toward. 
Final bullet. The Holy Spirit directed and inspired certain forms and structures that were directed at individual churches. Let me give you an example of 1411. Different roles. Look how it reads here. So Christ himself, Christ, he was raising up a church. He gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. When you think of all of the different roles and functions and the spiritual gifts that that in this place that God wants to use to grow the church, to build the church up, to become more beautiful. See, the challenge is at times we want to step back and we want to go, we don't like the church. And Jesus is saying, it is important. I am building my church. I'm going to ask the elders to come on up for communion. But I want to just mention this. It's not in your notes. Even the aspect of the table today. Do you realize that that's even directed at the gathered group of believers? We are called to remember together. And we're reminded together that he died for us. That he loved us. We practice open communion And I would just remind you that if you know Christ, if he's worked in your heart and you responded in faith to him, uh, you please take communion. But just for today, just cause it ponder as you hold the bread and please hold it and we'll take it together. But just ponder and say, God, thank you for working in my heart. Give him thanks and praise. Elders want to pass out the bread.